I'm Ron Gilliard. I do pastoral care for Southside Baptist Church. I apologize to you if you came this morning hoping to hear Brother Gary speak. Uh, he is en route to Ridgecrest. North, uh, Ridgecrest is in North Carolina with some of our seniors for a retreat. And so I'm going to follow along in the awakening series that he began uh, several weeks ago as we're leading up towards our October revival. And our message this morning is going to be, Are We Listening? And we took it from 1 Samuel, so that's kind of where we're headed with this. Uh, if any of you happen to be, I'm not going to ask for hands or anything, but if you've been in the education field, if you've been a teacher or if you've been involved in education, you probably would agree with the statement, there are good listeners and there's some not-so-good listeners. You know, when I was a little boy, uh, I had a very undeserved reputation of being too active. I mean, I'm not sure what that they were talking about, but my, I had a Sunday school teacher that once said, you always knew where Ronnie was because he was either on top of the table or he was underneath it. Apparently, I was never sitting at it, listening the way I was supposed to. But anyway, listening, aside from not being under the table, there's some other uh, rules, if you would, techniques they say that we should employ if we want to be good listeners. One of them happens to be uh, position yourself to listen. It says, you know, see the person that is talking to you, that you're talking with. Try to make eye contact is a good thing. Uh, be attentive. Uh, keep an open mind. These are just some that are listed there. Listen and picture. I always heard that. That's kind of hard. Picture what they're saying. Try to understand the big, the big picture that they're talking about. Uh, don't interrupt, of course. Wait for a pause to ask a question. And only ask questions that will ensure your understanding. That will help you to understand what they're really talking about. Uh, and then lastly, give feedback and pay attention to nonverbal clues. That's very important. Well, obviously, since we're in 1 Samuel this morning, the question of are we listening, we're really asking, are we listening for God to speak with us? And so my first question leading into that would be, are we seeking God? You know, the, the book of 1 Samuel doesn't actually begin. The writer of the book decided not to start with Samuel. He started with Samuel's parents, and he felt like it was important to kind of give us that lead-in, if you're familiar with the story about where Samuel came from. So I'm going to share that with you because I thought it was pretty good, too. This guy's name, Elkanah, is Samuel's dad-to-be. He's going to become Samuel's dad as the story goes on. But Elkanah, the scripture says, had two wives. He had Hannah, and then he had Penina. And there's a long story about why he had two, and we won't get into that now. But anyway... Uh, the scripture also says that Penina had children, but Hannah didn't have any kids. And to say that that was a distinction between the two is a vast understatement. Uh, Hannah was painfully aware that she had no kids, partly because Penina reminded her of it a lot. You know, she told her all the time. Now, Elkanah would take his family once a year and go from the town that he was in. He would travel to Shiloh is the town where the tabernacle was. And in fact, Eli, which we're going to get into, Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They were the priests in Shiloh. So this is where um, Elkanah took his family to go into worship and to sacrifice at least once a year. Now, these trips and this period was especially painful and especially difficult for Hannah. Um, on the days in which Elkanah would sacrifice, he would portion out the meat that he had, and he would give some to Penina. He would give some to her children. But the scripture says he would give a double portion to Hannah because he loved Hannah. 
even though the Lord had closed her womb. So Hannah was more distressed and more, she was crying and she couldn't eat and she was really in a bad way during this time of when they would go to sacrifice. And uh, Elkanah being the sensitive uh, with it man, the way we all are, all us guys are, he said, what's the matter? <laughs> what's, wrong with, what's wrong with you? You know, why are you crying? Why, are, why won't you eat? You know, and then as if that wasn't bad enough, he, he has this great line. He says, am I not better to you than ten sons? I like that. That's really a good line. Am I not better to you than ten sons? I've used that a time or two with my wife. I'm not sure I ever got a really good solid answer from her about that. But anyway, I, you know, to give Elkinah any kind of credit whatsoever, maybe he was trying to take her focus off of the sons that she didn't have and put it on the husband that she did have. I don't know. Nevertheless, uh, when he said that to her, well, it, it, it really didn't give her a lot of comfort, I'm afraid. But as Hannah was approaching the temple, and Eli was there watching the people as they would come in, well, Hannah was praying so deep in her heart to God. She was really in deep, serious prayer. She probably had her eyes half-closed, you know, how we pray sometimes. And she was, it was an in internal prayer, but her mouth, her lips were moving just a little bit. And Eli saw that. And he thought, well, you know, this lady's been drinking maybe uh it's pretty pretty bad assumption in the morning but anyway he said to her he called her out and he said put away your wine woman and she says no and then in verse let's see do we have verse 15 to pop up there 115 but hannah answered no my lord i am a woman troubled in spirit i've drunk neither wine nor strong drink but i've been pouring out my soul before the lord that doesn't sound like a prayer before a meal does it or a prayer at nighttime. It sounds like a sounds like she was seeking God in the biggest way, and she was really pouring herself out as she was praying. She her prayer went on. I mean, obviously she was praying that the Lord would would remember her. Uh, would he? She just she knows that God knows her plight that she has no kids. It's not like she's telling God anything, you know. But she's just praying. But she does. She says, "Lord, please give me a." A son, a man-child is really what I need. She actually goes so far as to make a vow where she says, Listen, Lord, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him back to you. I'll, he'll serve you all the days of his life, and a razor will never touch his head. So she said this actually in front of Eli. She said, That's what I'm praying for the Lord. And so Eli said, Well, you know, go and be blessed. Maybe the Lord will hear your prayer, and I pray that he will. And so, now, if you happen to, <laughs> this crowd is too young to know who Paul Harvey was. Paul Harvey used to say, and the rest of the story, because we're studying 1 Samuel, and because you know what the rest of the story is, Elkanah takes his family at the end of this week, takes them all back to, to their house. The scripture says, Elkanah knew Hannah, Hannah had Samuel, Hannah became a very happy lady after that. Okay. Now, you know, as complete... And as good as some of our Bible stories are, uh, and as they, they really give us truth, sometimes we have trouble in, in putting it in context for today. So I have a, a parallel story I'd like to share with you. Maybe it'll shed a little light or help in this regard. A couple by the name of Art and Kelly, people that we know. Um, Art and Kelly graduated from college in oh, 1986, and uh, they went to college in North Carolina, and they moved to Pennsylvania he was a chemist, and she had a degree in journalism or something. Anyway, Art and Kelly, uh, after a year or two in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, of kind of 
doing normal housekeeping things that young people do. You know, they get their house set up and they get their job and their friends and their church, hopefully. They do all these things. And then they were saying, okay, we're ready. Let's have kids, you know. It's time to have children. So two years go by, three, four. They've been married five years. No kids yet. And it, and it wasn't, you know, they weren't quite to the point where they said, oh, you know, is this going to happen? They're young. They know it's going to happen. Six years go by. Actually, Art and Kelly were Christian, Christian couple. You know, non-Christians, I've noticed, believe in coincidence. They think, well, it's going to happen this way, or maybe it'll happen this way. You know, who knows? It just kind of happens one way or the other. And, but Christians believe in prayer. They believe in faith. You know, we're not always happy with the way things are. That's why God invites us to pray. He invites us to say, please, you know, give us a son in this example or whatever. And so there's nothing wrong with that. But we don't believe it's just by chance. We believe there's a plan that the Lord has some control over. And that's why we pray. That's basically why we pray. Anyway, Art and Kelly, seven years, eight years go by. Nine years are starting to hear that biological clock tick. It's kind of scary to them. Uh, Ten years, even Christian friends are now saying to them, Hey, guys, y'all go to, go to the doctor and see what the doctor has to say. See if you can get some help. And so they, they say, okay, you know, maybe that's God's will for us. So they go to a fertility specialist. And I don't know all the details about this, so I'll do the best I can with it. Uh, the doctor, of course, brings them in and early on gives them a form. And the form they're supposed to sign says um, the, the doctor, the physician, controls the contents of the womb. Sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? Well, anyway, they, these two well-educated kids said, you know, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, what are you talking about here? And he explained, well, you know, the highest success rate is when you pare down those embryos to two that have been planted and you get rid of all the rest. And they said, what does get rid of mean? What do you mean by that? Well, you take them out. And they said, well, doesn't that kill them? Well, yeah, it does. Well, you see where this is going. Uh, this was kind of a difficult thing for them to, to digest. They didn't want any part of that. So after some discussion, they finally told the doctor, no, we're not going to be able to do that. And boy, he was not, he didn't take that well. <laughs> you know, doctors, I think, are used to us agreeing with them for a lot of good reasons. But he did not take it well. And so as he left, a little bit in a huff, he said, you will never have a child without my help. Well, that's kind of insensitive <laughs> Kind of mean-spirited almost. But anyway, they went home and they prayed more. You know, Lord, Kelly especially and Art said, Lord, if it's not, this looked like the final door had been shut. It looks like they had, you know, they wanted a child so bad and this was the, the last opportunity they had to do anything. And that door closed for them. So they were saying, Lord, you know, if it's, if it's not your will for us to have children, you know, praise God, we know you've got something big planned for us. So just help us to make it through this, lead us to that. You know, they were full of faith and prayer, which is very difficult in a time such as that. Kelly and Art remember that day really well. It was February the 23rd, 1986, when the doctor said, you're not going to have a kid without my help. Because one year later to the day, February the 23rd, 1997, we have this picture. This young lady was born on that very day to Kelly, a healthy 
beautiful baby girl. She's now graduated from high school and is headed to Penn State for her education. So Kelly and Art believe God did, in fact, close the womb for 10 years, but God opened it again too. It was his decision. It wasn't chance. You think I had any chance at all of convincing this young couple that God didn't listen to them, didn't speak to them, didn't help them during this time of their prayer and their distress? I don't think so. Go back to Hannah. Hannah says in verse 27, actually it took her, um, she said to Eli, you know, the Lord has given me this son and, you know, I made a vow to to God that I would give him back to the Lord in service. And and Eli, I mean, not Eli, I'm sorry, Elkanah, her husband, says very appropriately, you know, you need to do what you have to do. You know, you made this vow to the Lord and you have to do what you're, you're going to do. So she waited until Samuel was weaned, which in that, those days it took them about three years to do that. And so when Samuel was weaned, she took Samuel and she took some uh, things for sacrifice and she went to see Eli in Shiloh. And in verse uh, 27, it says, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I've lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he's lent to the Lord. And he worshiped there. Worship the Lord there. So in addition to the question, are we seeking God? I would ask the question, are we positioned to hear from God? You know, I love the depiction of um, the guy in Fiddler on the Roof. You're familiar with the musical and it went on to become a movie and all of Fiddler on the Roof. The dad in there, he's walking down the road and he's working in the yard and he's at the house. He's doing all sorts of things and he's talking to God while he's doing it, isn't he? You know, it's, I, I don't like, it's a little casual at times when I think about who we're talking to, but I love the fact that it's just an ongoing, a steady, not, you know, and he's talking about the weather, and he's talking about the children, and he's talking about life in general. Uh, it's not just a, a, a periodic prayer, but it's an ongoing dialogue with the Lord. You know, in, in Micah, I remember this really well growing up, Micah 6, 8 says, he's told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That walk with God gives me an image of God walking down the road and you're spending time and you're having conversation and it's, and it's not a strange thing, it's an all-the-time thing. You know, uh, you know, every day we're praising God for all the blessings that we see around us and all the things that are happening and we're relying upon God for the things that uh, we know that he's in control of from beginning to end. As we move into, I mentioned Eli and Hophni and Phinehas there at Shiloh earlier. They're the, the two priests at that tabernacle. And I hope they're, they're really bad guys. In verse 12, in 1 Samuel 2.12, it says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Boy, I tell you what, that's an, almost an understatement there. Uh, in chapter 2, it talks about some of the things they do. They're... They're taking some of the sacrifice and they're uh, uh, abusing some of the people that come. And I mean, they really are. They're super bad guys. And you wonder, how is that possible? Now, we know that there's, I I shouldn't, I'm not picking on priests. They happen to be priests, preachers. They're worthless preachers. There's worthless people that are in in the church that come every week. You know, so what, what's the difference? What makes you that way? It's not an association that we have with the place. It's not what our parents did before we came along. It's not any of those things, is it? It's an individual and a personal 
characteristic that we have. If we happen to be worthless, it's, it's, it's us, isn't it? It's, we can't blame that on anyone else. There is a description here as to why they were worthless. It says they did not know the Lord. You know, that, that term, know the Lord, is an interesting one. It kind of has an Old Testament ring to it. I know in, in Jeremiah 31, let's see if we have this. Jeremiah 31, God gives us kind of a, an insight to a covenant that he would like to have with us. This is the covenant he wants to have. And he says, uh, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You know, Eli tried his best, and he, he, it describes him as being much older, and his sons were kind of out of control. And he tried to, to speak to him, but apparently not forcefully enough. Uh, it's where that story goes. But he said to him in verse 25, he says, you know, if you sin against man, God will mediate for you. But if you sin against God, who's going to intercede? You know, how bad is that? We're, James tells us that we're supposed to, if you decide to be a teacher for whatever reason, you're going to be held to a little bit higher standard because you, you're supposed to know what the truth is. You're supposed to know what it is you're speaking of. And so then how can these guys be such awful people? Well, the answer is they didn't know God. As we move into chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, this is really where the the thrux of our story is. Uh, Samuel uh, 3.1 says, Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no frequent vision. That's part and parcel, I'm sure, because... No one was positioned to hear from the Lord. No one, uh, the, the guys who were supposed to be leading the tabernacle, they were filled with problems of their own, so they certainly weren't doing it. Uh, so aside from, are we seeking God? Are we positioned to hear from him? I'd ask the question, are we watching for nonverbal clues? You know, Samuel was about 12 years old now. He had already, he came when he was about three, so he had been there about nine years and it says in verse 26 that he continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So during this young period of his life, he's growing closer to God as well. Uh, it's interesting that in verse 7, when you ask the question, well, we have three different times early on, God comes to Samuel and says, Samuel, and Samuel doesn't know who it is. So he jumps up and goes into Eli. And he says, here I am, for you called me. And Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. So he does. Well, three different times. And I, I, as I read that, I thought, well, now, why didn't Samuel know it was God? Well, you know, I guess you can think he's 12 years old. You know, he's never had this experience before. Uh, he's used to having Eli in the next room. And he's probably answered Eli many, many times, pardon me. So it, it's, um, I, I guess that's, understandable, but it also says here, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, using that same verbiage, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The difference probably between Samuel and Hophni and Phinehas, of course, is that Samuel was positioning himself to try and get closer to God, 
It says that uh, there in 26 that he continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord. So this is really where, um, you know, if I were to say to you, I'm speaking to God. Say, oh, that's nice. That means he's praying, you know. But if I were to say to you, God is speaking to me, I'd get some raised eyebrows and some funny looks from some of you. And you'd wonder, well, now, I wonder, I wonder if he's hearing voices or what it means, you know. Well, I don't know. What are we saying then? Does God not speak to us? I don't know about everybody else. Let me tell you one little story about myself, and you tell me what you think. Fifteen years ago, uh, Lisa and I were living in Orlando, Florida, and I was uh, into a 35-year career with a big company, and we were sent there, and so we were at a missions conference. We went to Winter Park Baptist Church. Missions conferences is where missionaries come off the field, and they come in, and they tell you about the work they're doing, and you get to see and talk with them, and you have speakers, and it's really a, a great, great time. And we had previously said to each other, you know, do you think there's ever going to be a day where we can serve the Lord full time? And I said, well, you know, <laughs> I've got this job over here. It's kind of a, a hassle i got to go to every, every day, so... I don't know. We'll see. And, you know, as we talked about it and we enjoyed the missions week very, very much, but, you know, I said, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm getting old now. This was 15 years ago, so I was 15 years younger than I am now, but I felt old then. You know, I was 55 years old. I thought, boy, I don't know. I'm, I'm getting too old for this. And I said, all of these young missionaries that I see come in, they're 25 years old. They've got seminary degrees. They've got energy, and they're smart, and they're learning new languages, and they're going out and sharing Jesus with people all around the world. I said, you know, I don't know why they would ever pick me to do that, you know, because I'm nowhere near qualified. So we said, okay, well, that night we went to the missions conference, and they had a speaker, a guy from Woodstock, Georgia. Anybody knows Woodstock, Georgia? Johnny Hunt is not too big a guy. He's a little bit smaller than me. And he had a strange way. He was leaning across this podium, and he was kind of pointing out. And our pastor would never do that. He had a lot more, a lot more pizzazz than that. He would never point at people. But Johnny liked to do that. He was out here pointing. And all of a sudden, he came and he pointed straight at me. And he said, and if you think that all missionaries are 25-year-old seminary-trained individuals, you're wrong. Wow. The hair just kind of stood up on the back of my neck because... Not only was that what I thought, that's what I just said. You know, I said, my house must be bugged. Where did he get that from? You know, somebody is listening to me. And then he kind of came around a few minutes later, and then he came right back to me again. And he said, and if you think that the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, from where your next breath is going to come, you don't think he can't use you? You're wrong. Wow. We went home some sort of convicted, let me tell you. We thought, well, you know, we've been uncovered. You know, <laughs> there's no place to hide. You know, he knows, he knows where we live. So uh, uh, we said, well, after we sort of talked at the death, we, it, it was late in the in the morning, early in the morning. We were still talking. I said, well, we finally ended up putting the church spin on it. We said, okay, what this means is we've got to be obedient. Whatever whatever doors the Lord opens for us, we've got to go through them. Right, 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 right. That's what we'll do. Whatever doors the Lord opens, we're going to go through them. Yes, sir. That's our plan. Okay. So the mission conference wraps up. We go to church on Sunday. And our pastor, um, Tommy Benson, 
Nice guy. Our pastor, who I said never points, did a strange thing. He started pointing. I guess he learned it from Johnny. He must have thought it was pretty effective or something. So he, st- he starts pointing. And lo and behold, you know, he's kind of working around and he's talking his points. And then, whap, he hits me again. And he says, and if you're asking God to open doors, you better shake a few doorknobs and see if God hadn't done his part and he's waiting on you to do your part. So we really were convicted. So the next day, we go to... Uh, I go to work. I asked Lisa, I said, please call the IMB, see if they have any jobs for tired, worn out people who would love to come and serve the Lord. And sure enough, they did. So that was, do you think that God was speaking to us? We felt like he was, very much so. And it wasn't, I, I didn't hear the voice. I've always wished I had a, uh, a shining light conversion, which a I didn't actually have. I think Lisa did, but anyway. So the question, are we listening? Let me summarize some of this. Uh, We're seeking God. Are we seeking God? Are we positioned to hear? Are we watching for nonverbal clues? Are we listening? That's really what we're seeing. Are we listening? You know, uh, there's a difference between listening and hearing. Sometimes what we hear, we don't like. The answer's no, or the answer's not now. Uh, But it doesn't change our role, our responsibility, to be listeners for God to speak to us and to look for that. Uh, It takes faith. I mentioned earlier, have faith and pray. Don't rely on coincidence. Coincidence isn't a good game plan. Faith is a good game plan. You know, Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, if that doesn't fall into the category of uh, nonverbal clues, I'm not sure what does. Um, so where does faith come from? You know, Paul did a great job of addressing this in Romans, and he was trying to tell people, you know, are you're are, are you wondering how you get this faith? You're wondering how it comes to you and, and how you express yourself with this faith? He says, uh, you know, are you going to try and pull Christ up from the abyss to help you have this? Or are you going to pull him down from heaven so that he can? No, no. It says in verse 8, says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. And in parentheses it says, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. This is the faith we're talking about. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So the question then is, do you know God? Do you have a personal relationship with the Son, Jesus? Do you believe that he came and died for your sins? Do you believe that eternal life is available to you if you turn from your sins and call Jesus your Lord and Savior? You know, if you've not made this type of decision in the past, um, today's the best day to make it in. Our final response is, our final thing, if we can get it up here, from Samuel says, our response should be just like Samuel's. And he said, when the Lord said, Samuel, Samuel, 
Calling as at other times, Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. So we want to hear. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this opportunity to um, be a part of this service and to be with these folks. Lord, we just pray your blessings on them. We pray, Lord, that uh, as we look to issues of faith and our walk with you and our uh, time with you, Lord, uh, while it is a personal thing, it is uh, expressed in the way that we live our lives and it's expressed in, in the joy that we have to others and the way that we communicate and, Father, we thank you that, that uh, all of these folks are here today uh, seeking you, uh, seeking to have a time of worship, a time of uh, praise, a time to draw closer to you, Lord. And so my prayer would be that you would, in fact, uh, grant that and draw them closer to you in a real and saving way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.